Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, God and Art, we are going to be exploring God from the perspective of all different kinds of artistic medium. We will be talking about God from the perspective of painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, poetry, film, and photography. My hope is that through these mediums, we will come to a deeper understanding of how God is present in our everyday lives. Enjoy. Our first scripture lesson today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 19 through 37, just selected verses in that section. Listen for God's word. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, took the provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the army was going forth to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him, and the Israelites, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to, him, to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a war- warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw and strike it down and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Bet you don't know how the story ends, do you? (laughs) All right, we continue on. When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The word of the Lord. Um, before I get going, 
Can you raise your hand if you came in over the weekend and you helped decorate the sanctuary? Raise your hand. I want to thank you all for that. Can you give them a round of applause? There's a lot of little details that go into decorating for Advent, and I just want you all to know that we appreciate all the time that you put in to make that happen. Well, we are continuing on today with our sermon series, God and Art. And what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of our time in this series, which will go through Christmas Eve, is looking at various artistic mediums that we have not, up until this point, been able to focus on in the past two and a half months. And so today we're going to be talking about God in literature. Now this concept of God in literature is actually kind of a taboo topic among certain Christians because of the way some Christians approach the Bible. So, as you all are probably aware, that some people believe, many Christians believe, that the documents we find in the Bible, that they are inspired by God. And so, as a result of that, those words in the Bible are considered to be the most authoritative words for our walk with God. So, even if you read another book about God, that book is never going to have the same kind of relevance as the words that you will find in the Bible. Now, because of this perspective, certain Christians have taken on an adversarial relationship with literature, particularly literature that they deem not to have the appropriate Christian message within it. And so, you have probably heard this come out with certain churches saying that you can't read certain types of books. In our modern times, perhaps the most recent version of this was through the Harry Potter series, right? Have you ever heard of that? Like Willow Creek, for instance, (laughs) saying that their kids should not actually read the Harry Potter series because they say it promotes witchcraft. Now, what's interesting about that, at least in my opinion, is that Harry Potter is not only extraordinarily well-written literature, but the story of Harry Potter is based around the story of Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, she took the concept, lifted it, and used it for her story. And I have actually met people who have read the Harry Potter series, have nothing to do with Christianity, but then went off and read the Gospels because they were interested to learn why she had taken from Jesus' story. And so this is a very interesting idea of how certain people can experience God by reading literature. But it doesn't always just have to happen when an author lifts a story out of the Bible and superimposes it on to their story. It can happen in very unexpected ways. I'd like to tell you a story, and I think that that's fitting given that we are talking about God in literature. So this story, it begins back in 1963 during the inauguration of the governor of Alabama. The governor of Alabama, who had just been brought into office, was a man by the name of George Wallace. He had won the gubernatorial election with 96% of the vote. And during his inauguration speech, he said some very infamous words, words that would follow him for the rest of his life. He said, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Now, we have a clip of that. Why don't we play it? In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. 
Now these words, they became famous because they became the center of the conflict that occurred in Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement. Not long after he spoke those words, police in Birmingham, Alabama, they would sick dogs on the protesters. This is, was immortalized in this photo. And they would spray fire hoses at protesters. Not long after that, the KKK would bomb the 16th Street Baptist Church. We talked about this in previous sermons. And in that bombing, they killed four teenage girls. Eddie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Cynthia Wellesley, and Carol Robertson. Now, as many of you know, this was being broadcast all across America as it was happening. And people blamed George Wallace because his words seemed to be the spark that ignited this entire conflict. But you know what's interesting about those words, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever? They weren't his words. They were written by his primary speechwriter, a man by the name of Asa Carter. Now, Asa Carter, he was the very embodiment of Southern racism. He had formed his own splinter faction of the KKK. Every week on the radio, he had a 15-minute time slot where he would voice what were known as his liberty essays. And these liberty essays, they discussed things like racial purity and how the races should remain separated one from the other. He would go on rants about what he deemed to be the liberalization of America. And what he meant by the liberalization of America was a number of different topics. He believed that you should not integrate. He believed that you shouldn't listen to rock and roll, and he was very much against communism. He also had become the editor and publisher of his own white supremacist magazine. And because some of the staffers for George Wallace had read that magazine, they thought, this guy writes pretty well. We should get him in here and have him become your speechwriter. And so as a result of that, George Wallace won the election in 1962. But as time went on, George Wallace began to change his tune. In 1969, when he ran for re-election, he ran on a platform of unifying Alabama. He no longer wanted to be seen as a racist and a segregationist. And when he won in 1969, he gave a speech in 1970. And in that speech, he said, Alabama belongs to all of us, black and white, rich and poor, young and old alike. Now, I can tell you right now, that was not written by Asa Carter. Asa Carter had been dropped as his primary speechwriter a couple years prior. And Asa Carter, he felt betrayed by George Wallace. He felt betrayed by him. He felt that he had turned his back on everything that he had believed in. And apparently what happened was, on the steps of the Capitol, that day, he was sitting there and he was weeping. And a reporter comes up to him, he goes, Asa, what's the matter? And he said, George Wallace sold out. He's betrayed us to the liberals of this nation. And what people remember that day, Asa, he stood up, he looked at the Capitol, he bid farewell, and vanished from the face of the earth. Now, you all know the story doesn't end there, right? It keeps going. And it starts again in a very odd place. About five years later, in Abilene, Texas. So, in Abilene, there is a bookstore... And a Cherokee Indian walks in 
to that bookstore. And no, that's not the beginning of a joke. That is actually what happens in the story. So, the owners of this bookstore are Chuck and Betty Wheat, and the Cherokee Indian who walks in is a man by the name of Forrest Carter. Now, Forrest Carter, he is a man of very dark complexion. He has a mustache. He's wearing a cowboy hat, and he has blue jeans on. He comes in, he says, I just moved into town, and I'd really like to get to know the people of Abilene. I said, well, who are you? Where are you from? He said, well, I kind of have a sad story. My father and mother, they died when I was five, and so my grandparents, who are Cherokee Indians, they raised me in Tennessee. We had no electricity, we had no running water, we had no education. But over the years, I've taken to writing, and I've become a pretty decent writer, and as a result, I've actually written a book that's been circulating in Hollywood, and Clint Eastwood wants to take my book and turn it into film. And they found this kind of hard to believe, this guy just walking into a bookstore and saying, he says, well, they're going to make the movie. It's going to be called The Rebel Outlaw, Josie Wales. And, of course, the movie comes out, and everybody goes and sees it, and there's his name right in the credits, Forrest Carver. And everybody's just so, so thrilled. And so they start inviting this guy over to their house. Everybody wants to get to know him. And he starts regaling people of his childhood, what he was doing when he was growing up with his grandparents. And he eventually tells him, he says, you know, I'm writing another book right now. It's an autobiography. It's called The Education of Little Tree. And it's going to talk all about my childhood. And so this book gets published, and Forrest, he gets invited to go up to New York. And he is on the Today Show, and he's introduced by Barbara Walters at that point in time as an Indian who's busted Broncos all over the Southwest. Well, people back in Abilene, they are super thrilled that Forrest's story is now getting national exposure. And in fact, people fell in love with this book. Teachers were clamoring to have this book taught in their classrooms because the core message of this book was one of tolerance. It was about accepting those who were so very different from ourselves, the The heroes in the book, the main characters, are the Native Americans, the African Americans, and the Jewish characters, people who have been classically discriminated against throughout most of American history. And as a result of this message, it rose to be a New York Times bestseller. But then back in Alabama, there was this book reviewer, his name was Wayne Greenhaw, and he's about to write a review of The Education of Little Tree. And he happens to be walking down the street in Birmingham one day, and this guy stops him in the street. He goes, hey, aren't you that guy who writes book reviews for the newspaper? He goes, yeah. He goes, are you going to be writing a book review of that new book that just came out, The Education of Little Tree? He goes, yeah, I'm just about to write it, actually. He goes, well, you do realize that the author of that book, Forrest Carter, is really Asa Carter. They're the same person. He's just putting a, he's fooling you guys. He's putting one over on you. And he goes, no, that's not possible, because this reviewer, he knew Asa Carter. He remembered him from when he was back in Alabama. And so he goes, and he actually looks at a picture side by side. He wants to see a picture of Asa versus Forrest, and he realizes, actually, they are the same guy. It's just that Forrest Carter is now 20 pounds lighter and five shades darker than he had been when he lived in Alabama. And so Wayne Greenhaw, he writes this huge expose for the New York Times, linking the 
segregationist white supremacist Asa Carter from Alabama to the Cherokee Indian who was raised by his grandparents, Forrest Carter, from Tennessee. And he figures this thing's going to be a huge scandal. People are going to see this, and it's really going to blow up. But you know what? Front page of New York Times, you know what happens? Nothing. Nobody cares. Nobody seems to really think that it makes any difference that the same man who wrote The Education of Little Tree that contains passages like this. One time, Grandma told me, when you come on something good, first thing to do is share it with whosoever you can find. That way the good spreads out where no telling how far it'll go. Could be the same man who wrote Segregation Now, Segregation Tomorrow, Segregation Forever. And so this raises a really interesting question for us, doesn't it? Which is, what exactly was Asa slash Forrest Carter trying to do when he was writing this book, The Education of Little Tree? Because every story in that book, by the way, is fabricated from beginning to end. None of it is true. And some people have speculated that the reason why he wrote the book is because he was trying to mock what America had become by adopting the liberal agenda of accepting everyone as equals. But then there were some people who said that actually they believed that he was writing this book to make up for his racist past, that his heart had changed, that he didn't really believe in those things anymore, and he was trying to distance himself from those things he said when he was young. So, which one is it? Well, firmly in the camp of he was a changed man are all those people in Abilene, Texas. And so I want to play a clip for you from NPR's This American Life of Chuck and Betty Wheat, the owners of that bookstore, who met Forrest and what they have to say about the fact that Forrest Carter has this very sordid past as a bigoted racist. Let's listen to what they have to say. I personally think the Forrest Carter I knew was sincere. The other life he seemed to have had as Asa Carter, I just sort of dismiss it. I agree with that. I guess it's sort of that feeling that give a man a chance, he might change himself. And we felt like, well, he tried to change himself and he succeeded with us. I didn't like Asa Carter, I'll guarantee you. But I did like Forrest Carter. There's another person who has some thoughts on this. One of the few people who knew both, Forrest and Asa Carter. He was Uncle Asa to me. He wasn't Uncle Asa the white supremacist. He wasn't Uncle Asa the staunch segregationist. He was Uncle Asa, you know. So for me, it was my uncle wrote this wonderful book. Carol Boyd is the daughter of Asa Carter's brother. She's never spoken about any of this on the record before. All of Asa's family members have kept silent for years. Like many of them, Carol was sheltered from most of the details of her uncle's racist past. The main thing she knew about her uncle, he was the true author of The Education of Little Tree. So when did you first read The Education of Little Tree? I guess I was a senior in high school when I first read it. I loved it. I fell in love with it. I actually cried. I just think it's a beautiful story. I still read it today. <laughs> Just to have the ability to write that book, whether you present it as an autobiography or not, just to have that in you, I think, says that there is a good part of this person. I would hope that people would choose to believe 
maybe he found a softer side in his older years, and maybe he did change. All right, so that's one side. On the other side, we have a man named Ron Taylor. Ron was actually a friend of Asa Carter's when he was writing speeches for George Wallace. He knew him during that time. And let's hear what he has to say about the difference between Asa Carter and Forrest Carter. Did he believe that he changed? Did he change? That's the question you asked. No. No, 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 not at all. Not at all did he change. You know, I could uh, do like some and just say, oh, you know, he didn't really mean that. You know, he didn't this, that, and the other, but he did. You know, he did. Uh, he felt like he was right, and he lived it, and he died it. He just didn't change. He was Asa Carter. There are some interesting clues that support Ron's theory. Many of the supposed Cherokee words in the book Asa completely made up. Just nonsense words. Mona La, the Earth Mother, comes up a lot. Not a word. The name Forrest. It's not about communing with nature. It comes from Nathan Bedford Forrest. Never heard of him? He was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And even the fact that the book is told from the point of view of a Cherokee kid, some white supremacists, it turns out, had a thing for Native Americans. KKK members sometimes bragged about being part Native American. It's the noble savage trope that goes back to D.W. Griffith films and much earlier. It may seem counterintuitive, but to Asa Carter, it was perfectly reasonable to glorify Native Americans while hating blacks and Jews. And there's one more thing. Asa's inscription in the copy of the book that he gave to Ron. No. This is my copy of it. It has gotten rather tattered. His signature page, it says, for Ronnie, my friend whose loyalty to the Southern cause has made us comrades, Forrest Asa, in quote, Carter. The only time he ever signed it that way. All right. So it's a little bit of a conundrum, isn't it? It seems that this book has two very different meanings. You can read it one way where it's a book about love, equality, and the struggle for acceptance. And then you can read it in an entirely different way, where, in essence, he's trying to promote the exact same things that he believed when he was writing speeches for George Wallace. So to work this out, I actually would like to turn to our scripture for today, because I think that's going to help us figure out the difference between the man and the message of this book found within so real briefly, we talked about the story of David and Goliath. You all have heard this story before, right? You know what it's about. Now, everybody knows this story, but the fact is, I want to go through it real quick just so that we're all on the same page. So follow me real fast on this. So there's two sides. There's the Israelites and the Philistines, and they're about to have a fight. But the leaders decide that rather than kill all their men, they're going to send one person each to the center of the field, and they're going to have those two guys battle it out. Now, the Philistines, they have this big guy, Goliath, who can basically kill anybody. He can overpower any of the Israelite soldiers. And so the Israelites, they're not real keen on actually sending any of their guys over there. But then this kid, David, he steps up and he says, hey, I'll take him on. Because this guy's no different from the lions and the bears and the tigers, oh my, that I deal with all the time when I'm out there 
dealing with my sheep, right? I'm trying, to get them, I'm trying to keep them away, so I just sling stones at them. I'll just do that with him. So they go out to the middle of the field, and he takes a stone, he slings it into uh, Goliath's forehead, it renders him unconscious, he takes Goliath's sword, chops off his head, wins the battle. So this story, it has become synonymous with this idea that no matter how small you are, no matter how much the odds are against you, you can triumph. And for generations, people have read the story, and it's been very inspirational to them. But here's the truth. The story is not based in reality. You have to understand that David, when he became the leader of Israel, he ruled over Israel's golden years, the best years of their lives. And as a result, he became this figure who was really held in high esteem. And so as a result, like many of our leaders, like George Washington, for instance, mythology is developed around him. What's a mythology that developed around George Washington? You all know. What is it? It's when he chopped down the cherry tree. You all know that one, right? Now, is that true? No, it's not. In fact, if you go back and you look it up, the guy who wrote it was a pastor. Funny how he created that, right? So... You have these mythological stories, and some of them found their way into the Bible after David's death. And one of them was David and Goliath. Now, how do we know that this story is a mythology? We know it because the Bible tells us it's a mythology. If you keep reading past 1 Samuel and you get to 2 Samuel, you're going to find this very interesting verse. It just crops up real fast, and you may not even recognize this. This is what it says. Then there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan the son of Jareh or Jem, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Just a real quick sentence in there. It's strange, isn't it? But it's talking about the death of Goliath. It's the same story, but it happens twice. And we have two different people who are responsible for it. We have this one, where it's this guy Elhanan, whoever he was. And then we have this huge, long story about David the kid, Killing Goliath. Now, we know it's the same Goliath because of that sentence right there. You see the sentence at the end? Whose spear was like a weaver's beam? That's a piece of oral tradition that followed Goliath wherever he went. That's how we know it's the same person. And what's interesting is that editors of the Bible, they didn't like this. There was two different stories, right? And two different people. And so editors would actually add little things into this to try to make it so that Goliath wasn't really Goliath, so that it was like Goliath's son or one of his kin. It wasn't actually Goliath because they didn't want to get rid of David's story. But that's not true. If you look at the original Hebrew, it's the same guy. And so you have these two choices. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be the guy who just gets a sentence? Or is it going to be this big, long story about an eight-year-old boy, right, or however old he was, who goes out to the middle of the field and kills this big guy? Well, more than likely, it's going to be this guy, Elhanan, right? So, what does that do to the story of David and Goliath? Well, it makes it so that it didn't happen. But here's the question I would ask. Just because it didn't happen, does that make it any less relevant to our walk with God? And my answer to that is no, it doesn't make it any less relevant. Some people would say, yeah, if it didn't happen, then you shouldn't even look at it. But to me, it doesn't make any difference. And you want to know why? Because what's at the core of that story? What is that story talking about? What's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is that with God... Good will triumph over evil no matter what the odds. Do you believe that to be true? I do. I absolutely believe that to be true. And so when I read that story, I don't care whether it happened or didn't happen, it speaks truth to me about who God is. 
In the same way, Asa Carter, he wrote a book, The Education of Little Tree, with the intention of promoting his racist values. I think absolutely that was his intention when he did it. But when people read that book, what did they end up reading? Well, they took it differently than it was intended to be read. And so as a result of this, God bled through the pages of the education of Little Tree. God transformed that book that was intended for one specific purpose and used it and made it into something that Jesus would promote and what we see him saying in the Gospels. And you might just be saying, well, that's a coincidence, Alex, that people just read it the wrong way. I don't think so, though. Because isn't that what we believe about God to be true in Christianity? That God is always working with us as human beings, trying to take us, these creatures who make all these mistakes. We are these creatures who are constantly hurting ourselves and one another. Doesn't God try to use us for something better than we were intended to be? Isn't that the whole point of Christianity? And some of you in here, you might think yourselves incapable of doing better than you have done in the past. You might think that you are unable to change and be a good person, but let me tell you something. That if God can use Asa Carter, a man who dedicated his life to hatred and racism, then I guarantee you, God can use you. And so, as I end today, what I want you to take away from this is that there are no limits to God's work in the world. Whether a story is inside the Bible or outside the Bible, God can use it. Whether a story is real or made up, God can use it. Whether you have given your life to good or evil, ultimately, God can use it. No matter what you have done in your life, God can transform you and use your life for good in ways that you never anticipated. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.